Thanks, Billy. Man, what a great morning of worship so far. How are you doing? Man, what a good morning. Um, you know, we are a, a church on mission, and uh, that means locally, it means nationally, it means internationally, and it means our everyday lives are the mission field of God. And so um, I wanted to let you know about another part of our missions program here is our international work. We've been uh, working in the Philippines for the last four years now. Um, this is uh, part of our international missions program where we are on, uh, on the edge of where the gospel has been, meeting with unreached people groups who've never heard the name Jesus and watching them come to salvation and then watching the church be established in villages and on tops of mountains and uh, in places that you can only get to by motorcycle or hiking. And, uh, and, and another part of our international mission effort is our family on mission. And uh, we've been praying about this now for four years, that God would raise up a family from within our church to go work among the people that we're working with on these uh, annual trips, uh, to spend three years there, um, investing in that community, helping establish the church, discipling the believers, seeing leadership emerge so that the church could go on and thrive and they could become a church on mission. And I want to let you know that um, behind the scenes, we've been meeting and interviewing a family from our church who's praying about that. And uh, later on this month... Uh, they'll meet with leadership team uh, for one final interview before we go forward. And so um, I would ask that you would pray for our family that is praying about this opportunity to go and actually move to the Philippines for three years and, uh, and pray for our leadership team as they conduct the interview, um, ultimately that we would be able to discern God's will for this really important uh, part of our missions program. So I want to let you know about that um, as we get ready to get started this morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 this morning. We've made it to chapter 3. If you're uh, visiting with us or just... Uh, coming back from being gone for a while, we are in Revelation, and, uh, and a lot of where we are right now in the first three chapters of Revelation has a lot to do with what's happening on the ground at the time this is being written. So late first century, somewhere around the mid-90s, the disciple, the apostle John is writing down what Jesus tells him to write down, and this is the book Revelation. Uh, when we get to chapter 4, uh, we'll actually turn a corner and begin looking at some of the more vivid and rich imagery and symbolism of the book. And right now we're reading these letters that Jesus told John to write down for him and send to the churches that were actually churches in that current time. Now there's different perspectives on the churches. Um, we know that these churches actually existed in these cities at this time. And a lot of what Jesus is speaking is really specific to their situations so it seems like there's a, there's a connection between what we're reading in Revelation to what was going on in late first century among the churches. But we also know that, that Jesus also, also speaks about things that will come. And so he's also thinking about things that they will face and, and perhaps even things that we will face as a church. Um, another perspective is that these churches uh, symbolize different eras or church periods. And so uh, last week, the church we were looking at, Thyatira, represented the, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. Um, and so then if that's the perspective, then today we're looking um, at the church in Sardis, which would then reflect the Reformation. And so in, uh, in the early 1500s, um, the Reformation sparking, um, most, most um, notably by uh, the 95 Thesis from Martin Luther, um, from the Catholic Church, rose up and began to stand up for what was what he believed to be biblically true, even against the church. And so he obviously and his followers went through a great deal of persecution. This sparked what we call the Reformation, reforming the church. And so um, it was a remnant from within the Catholic church that rose up and sparked this and which led to what we have today in modern-day 
Protestant churches, evangelicals. And so um, there are some who would look at, and we'll see why in just a minute, why the Church of Sardis might reflect that time period of the church historically. Um, so just, just one thing about uh, Sardis that I think will help us understand the text today. Um, Sardis was actually built up on a huge cliff surrounded by three sides, the east, the west, and the north, by a 1,500-foot sheer cliff. And it was only approachable by, from the south, which was actually a steep embankment itself. And so it was a well-fortified city, didn't fall very often in battle. Uh, notably, the only two times that it did fall uh, before uh, the first century were, when, were two different situations. One was in the 6th century B.C. They couldn't penetrate the city, so somebody from the military attacking the city actually scaled that 1,500-foot wall on a side where they weren't even watching and didn't expect the enemy to breach and climbed over the wall and snuck up to the gates and opened the gates for his military to come in. And then that happened again uh, in the uh, 3rd century B.C., this time a man led 15 soldiers and they scaled the 1,500-foot bluff. I guess you take 1,500 in case some fall, you end up at the top with at least somebody. And they once again penetrated the city, opened the gates, and let the military in. And so these are the only two accounts before the 1st century that the city actually fell in battle because it was so heavily fortified, which then led to um, a sense of complacency. And they just, they just tended to watch that south side, expecting all the enemies to come from the south. And the ones who actually got in, got in an unexpected way. So that's, that's just a little something about the city that I think will help us understand maybe even what Jesus is saying to the church and maybe even to us this morning. And so we're going to start in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. As all the letters begin, this very similar way, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So with each of the letters to the seven churches, Jesus begins this way, writing to the angel of the church or messenger, however you interpret that word, of the church. And he's writing a specific letter to these churches. In this particular um, letter, Jesus re reveals something about himself. He points back to the imagery of chapter 1 where he says, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so we talked a little bit about that on the, on the, on the second Sunday in this series about what this potentially uh, symbolizes, these seven spirits and these seven stars. And so just a, just a brief reminder here. Um, the seven spirits are like, most likely a reference to the Holy Spirit of God, which sounds strange until you begin to understand the symbolism of seven. Seven is a, is a number that resembles perfection, completion, perfectly right and good. The earth was created in seven days. After it was created, God said this is very good. And so seven in the scriptures most often reflects God points to the character of God of being complete and perfect, right? And so this imagery then most likely points to God. Um, there's some Old Testament imagery that helps us see this as well. In Zechariah 4, uh, the prophet is seeing this imagery, and he's interacting with an angel, and he sees a lampstand. Of, and on the lampstand, there are seven lamps. There's an olive tree on either side, and he's asking the angel what this represents, what this symbolizes. And in Zechariah 4, verse 6... The angel says to Zechariah, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. 
spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then into the end of chapter, or excuse me, the end of verse 10, these seven are the eyes of the Lord, which reigns throughout the whole earth. There's this reference to God, his spirit here on earth being symbolized by these seven lampstands or this number seven, that God's spirit here on earth, the Holy Spirit is what we're talking about here. So in Revelation, it's referred to as the seven spirits, not talking about seven individual spirits, but this idea of a, the, the perfect spirit. Not a demonic spirit, not an angel, not some type of apparition, but the true spirit of the one living God, the Holy Spirit. So, to him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, in Revelation 1, uh, Jesus tells us what the seven stars resemble. This is verse 20 of chapter 1. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right Hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have this imagery of the Holy Spirit of God being reflected by seven. We have the seven lampstands reflecting the seven churches. We have the seven stars symbolizing the seven angels or messengers to the churches. And in each of these letters, Jesus is addressing the messenger. The most important thing about this imagery, though, is where they are. Verse, chapter 1, verse 16 says, In his right hand he held the seven stars. In chapter 3, 1, we just read, He who has the seven possessive. What does that mean to us? Well, the, we, we understand that Jesus has ascended to heaven after the resurrection. He sits down at the right hand of God. It's a position of Authority, And now Jesus holds essentially authority over the churches by saying that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. I would say the most important thing about this imagery is that Jesus is, is revealing himself as an authority over the churches. Now, one by one, as we walk through the churches, we're seeing his authority executed. Right? We're seeing him issue judgment. We're seeing him bring authority to each of these churches. And so this imagery of Jesus holding in his hand the seven stars, if you think about these seven stars or the messengers or angels of the churches, Jesus is saying what? I hold it all in my right hand. I stand in authority over the churches. Now the rest of verse 1 shifts with these words, I know your works, which is normally where Jesus points out something good that is going on within the church, something admirable, something that he wants them to continue doing. Look at what he says. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So in Jesus pointing out the positives for this church community, even the positive has, has what? Has a caveat or a qualifying statement there, right? I know your reputation that you were alive, but you're actually dead. Now, if you're reading out of uh, New King James, King James, NASB, it's not the word reputation, is it? It's the word name. I know your name, which is probably a more literal translation of the word. It's not only what they were known by, but he's saying that you've become known. This is your identity in the community. This is how people look at you, and, and this is what they associate with you. Your name is alive, but you're actually dead. This, the Greek word is uh, anoma, which, which gives birth to the Latin word nomen, like nomenclature, um, or when we talk about something being nominal in name only. 
And so this isn't just like a nickname or a description. This would be a formal name identifying them. They have become known to the people around them. This church, is, these believers have become known to the people around them as being alive. But Jesus is saying what? But I see what's on the inside. You're actually dead. Even though the people around you are looking inside the church and saying, wow, they are really alive over there. They're full of life. They're enjoying life. They have life to the fullest. Jesus says, but I see inside of you. I see what's really going on. You're actually dead. And so even in Jesus pointing out something positive here with these people, we're seeing that even that isn't positive. And so... This is one of the things that would, would cause me to even think that this church reflects a lot of the modern church today. Nominal Christianity. Bearing the name Christian, wanting people to, to, to see us as Christians, when on the inside, though, there's something else going on. And so in our culture, you can, you can be labeled Christian, right, simply by where you stand on a political issue, by what radio station you listen to, what T-shirt you wear, your attendance at a, at a church, these outward things, right, we, we, call them, we tend to point to these as identity markers. Oh, you must be a Christian. You go to church or you, right, whatever, you stayed married and didn't get a divorce. And we look at these outward things and we, we call those things Christian, right, nominal Christianity. When on the inside, there could be, there could be no life. Could be just all a facade, just all a game. And so these Christians were struggling with this idea of, being known for one thing, but on the inside being dead. From the first verse, I want to point this out if you're taking notes. As Jesus reveals himself to these believers, Jesus alone stands in authority over his churches and judges the hearts of his people. And judges the hearts of his people. We're going to see this all throughout this letter today. Jesus seeing below the surface into what is really going on. Now, we've seen this specifically last week where the image of Jesus had, had his eyes were like fire. And in that imagery, what we were seeing is that God sees below the surface. His, his vision is penetrating. You can't fool him. You can't pull up a facade. These folks were doing a really good job with it, convincing everybody around them. But once again, Jesus is seeing past the facade. And so in, in verse 2, then, he issues some instruction for them. And he gives five commands to this church. We're going to look at these five commands. He begins in verse 2 by saying, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now that last part should sound somewhat familiar to you if you've read the New Testament or been in church for any period of time. That, that phrasing describing the coming of Christ, coming like a thief in the night, shows up in multiple places in the New Testament. Let's look at these commands that Jesus issues first of all. First thing he says is what? Wake up. A literal translation of this would be to say, show yourself to be watchful. Be alert. Don't give in to slumber or complacency. Don't let your spiritual eyes begin to droop, but wake up. Now, if we think about the history of this city and what has happened with them historically, 
um, what we just talked about earlier, right? They were a city that was known to be taken um, by being asleep, by feeling secure, by feeling complacent, like everything's okay. Nobody can penetrate our city. And what would happen is somebody would scale the wall like a thief in the night and sneak into the city and let the army in. And so Jesus, he issues to this city, wake up. Now, in Mark 13, Jesus is, um, is teaching, and here's what Jesus says in verse 35. He says, therefore, stay awake. Now, this is, this is speaking spiritually. Stay awake. If you're falling asleep right now, take it literally. Stay awake. For you do not know, here's why, you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he comes suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This beautiful imagery of the coming of Christ that we as the church would stay alert. We wouldn't slip into slumber or complacency, spiritually drifting off into dream world, but that we would stay alert and stay awake. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Neither the day nor the hour. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or 6, here's what we read from the Apostle Paul. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, sober-minded, being watchful, being alert. Now, this word is not just for the church in Sardis. This is for all Christians. That we wouldn't give in to drifting into complacency, false security, you know, the reality is for this church, if they had a reputation for being alive, there was probably a time where this church really was alive. There was good fruit, good, good works coming out of this church. The community around them saw this and began to acknowledge those people over there are alive. But somewhere along the way, they begin to drift away from being spiritually alive to spiritually dead. Now, Jesus points out there's, there's actually a remnant here. Uh, among them that haven't drifted yet. We'll talk about them in just a moment. So after he says, he issues the command, wake up, he issues the command, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains, meaning what? You're not completely dead. There is either a small group, a remnant of people who haven't given in yet, or as a group, as a whole, you're not completely dead. You're just almost dead. It's this imagery of the church is on life support here. Right, just barely hanging on. And rather than passing over to be completely dead, Jesus says what? We need to strengthen. You need to strengthen what remains. Come back to life. Come back to life. Now, not only is Jesus the only one who has overcome death and come back to life by his own power, in each of our lives, when we believe the gospel, he awakens something inside us and brings us to life, spiritually speaking. If you're here today and you're a Christian, before you were a Christian, you were walking in spiritual blindness. The world was dark without hope. Rather than walking as a, as a, as a, as a conqueror with God, you were, even if you didn't know it, walking as an enemy of God. And as you believe the gospel, it's like the scales fall off your eyes, and now you have eyes to see. You begin to see the world differently. You begin to see life differently. You have life inside of you. 
giving you hope and a future. You no longer dread what is to come, but you're, you're looking forward to it. So Jesus says, strengthen what remains. He's saying to those who are still alive within the church, wake up. It's almost like they had drifted off into a coma. Wake up. Wake up. And I love where he goes next. These three commands, I think, help us understand the how. How do we strengthen what remains? How do we do that? Work harder. Put in place more discipleship classes. Sing more songs. Preach longer, need longer church services. What do we need to do here to, to wake up? And so he points to these next three commands. The first one is remember. This is a really common command in the New Testament. Remember. Why? Because we're prone to do what? Forget. We're, we're prone to forget that Jesus made us alive. We're prone to forget how good he is, that he came to us when we, we didn't deserve it and we were walking in darkness and sin and, and rebellion and, and he came anyway. Right? We're prone to forget that when we began our relationship with God, we, we were those, those folks who like the least expected to be Christians. Like if, if we look at our former lives and see where he brought us out of and to, we look at, we've forgotten that, that there's been this amazing awakening and spiritual transformation and, and our identity has been established in Christ and we're no longer who we used to be. We're not defined by what happened yesterday, but we're defined by what Jesus has done on the cross and we forget this. We're prone to forget it. We're prone to slip into finding our own our identity and what we can do. We're prone to slip into trusting in our own spiritual strength rather than his. And young Christians in the room just know that. There's going to be a, a temptation to do that. When you first become a Christian, right, there's nothing you can do, and he's done it all, and it's glorious. But if you're not careful, you'll slip back into that mindset of trusting in your own strength, trusting in what you can do for yourself rather than what he can do for you, and Jesus is saying, what? I'm commanding you to remember. Don't forget. Don't forget where you've come from, what I've done for you, who I am for you, what I've established in your life. Remember, church. The next thing he says, keep. You could translate guard. This is also, again, a very common command in the New Testament. Keeping, guarding, holding fast to the gospel. Now, this is true, I believe, of every believer, um, every generation in the church. When we begin to understand the simplicity of the gospel, it's almost too simple. Combined with our pride that we like to do things for ourselves, when we truly are rooted in the gospel and we're in this place of, I didn't do anything to deserve to get here, we get a little freaked out sometimes. Right? We like to climb the ladder ourselves. We like to work our, ourselves into a position and know that we have some stability based on our own abilities. But the gospel doesn't say that to us. The gospel says, come as you are. You, you can't do anything to make yourself right before God. And I will establish you, Jesus says this, before God. And nothing you can do will make you any more or less holy before God. It's all what I've done. And that's an uncomfortable place for us to be as prideful human beings, isn't it? We like to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We like to rely on ourselves, not somebody else. Jesus said, that's not the economy of the gospel. You have to trust in me and me alone. And we're called to guard that, sometimes from our own selves. Keep it. Hold fast to it. How do we do that? We were talking about this in, in our life group um, this weekend. 
about holding fast to the gospel. How do you do that? And one of the ladies in our life group said, here's how I do it. I open God's word every day. And, and not always to learn something new, but what? To remember what I already know. As a part of holding fast to what I've already come to know. We need to read the gospel on a daily basis, don't we? We need to be reminded of it. We need to have the gospel preached over us and sung over us. It's why we sing the songs we sing here. Why? Because we're prone to forget it. We're prone to walk in here desperate, needing God to touch us, and he does. And, and now we're, we're feeling alive. And then do, to do what? To walk out of here and rely on the things that cause us to slip back into death. So we need, we need those songs ringing in our ear of gospel truths. And I think that the, the way that we remember and we keep Guard the gospel is, is, is primarily rooted in God's word. This is, this is the thing that doesn't change. The message we get from our culture and our world is always changing. Trust in this. This will make you happy. This will bring you joy. And the gospel says what? Don't trust in those things. Boy, I need to hear that every day. Every day. And so we're told, remember and keep and repent. The fifth command is to repent. Keep it and repent. Now, there's a warning that comes right after this, but because God is a God of grace, he gives us warning first. He's coming to those of us in slumber, those of us who are in spiritual coma, and saying, wake up. Wake up. I don't want, I don't want you to die. I want you to wake up. And so he ends with the command to repent. So important for us today, Christians, to realize this. Repentance is not spiritual adolescence. Repentance isn't the, isn't the identity marker of a spiritual toddler, a brand new Christian. I would say this, that the more mature you go and grow in Christ, the more familiar you are and the more frequent you visit repentance. We tend to think of repentance as something that baby Christians do when they first become Christians, right? Bull. It's just something that our elders have to be really good at. I must walk in repentance on a daily basis. The more like Christ I become, the more my eyes are open and I'm awakened to what remains in my body that is still in my life and in my heart that are still sinful. And so repentance is a good thing. It's me acknowledging, oh, here's another area of my heart that has been captured by darkness or by the world or by, by something that's not of God and, and I've been holding on to it and repentance is me letting go and taking hold of Christ. And the, the, the journey of being a Christian is a lifelong journey of letting go and taking hold, letting go and taking hold, letting go and taking hold. Sometimes it's big things that show up in the forms of like addictions and it takes a lot of time and effort and faith and prayer to let go. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. These addictions that, that latch themselves to us. And, and other times, they're small and they're more subtle. Right? Pride can, can show itself in really small, subtle ways. It can come out in the way you say things to the people you care the most about. And, and, and you need repentance in those moments to let go of that pride. We were talking about this recently. How We were talking about this in men's ministry, about the idols of our heart. And one of the idols in almost every man's heart is the idol of being right. I just got a lot of nods and grins from some ladies in the room. We are. We're idolaters. We worship at the idol of being right. And here's the sad thing, men. 
in our pursuit of that idol, we would trample those we love to be right. Don't we? We say things we don't mean. We do things, right, to promote ourselves. And in the wake, our, our wives, our children, the people around us often are trampled at the altar of being right. What do we need? We need repentance. I need to let go of that. In those heated arguments with my wife, almost every one of them, in my heart at least, the struggle is I have to be right. And i got to let go of that junk. I'm not right. I'm wrong all the time. All the time. I might have some of the facts right, but my heart is wrong. And I need to repent. I need to let go of that idol of pride and what? Take hold of Christ in that moment. All of Christian life is repentance. It's not just for the baby brand new Christian. It's for all of us. Jesus says, you want to come out of a coma and come back to life? Remember the gospel. Hold on to it. Hold fast to it. Dig into it daily. And what? Repent. As often as the word of God and the Holy Spirit reveal sin in your life, repent. And you'll come back to life. There's two statements I want to look at, or three statements in this passage First of all, he says, for I have, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. That found there is actually a ju judicial word. It's like when a judge finds somebody guilty. It has that kind of weight here. So I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Complete here being full. So they're not full. So right, if the, if the, if the cup isn't half full, it's half what? It's empty. So what Jesus is saying here, you have been tried, your heart has been tried, and you've been found what? Lacking. I have judged your works, and they are empty. I see you doing all the stuff. I see you carrying on your reputation. Everybody on the outside looks in and says, whoa, look at those Christians over there. But Jesus says what? But I've actually looked in past the surface, and here's what I've found. Those works are empty. Your motives are wrong. Your heart is wrong. You're seeking to build a reputation for yourself. And you're dead on the inside. In the sight of God, you are empty. Now, what we're going to see in just a minute, we'll come back to this, is whenever you, when God looks at you, your inner self is your outer identity. When I look at you, I see your outer self. Whatever you wanted to fix up today, however you wanted me to see you, it's how I see you. From the clothes you're wearing to the way your hair is done to the, even the personality you project, I see what's on the outside. I can't see what's inside of you. But what we're going to see over and over again is that when God looks at you, it's like the outer, whatever outer shell you have, it's not even there. He sees your inner self. That's your outer identity with God. And so in the sight of God, he's looking into the hearts of these believers. And he says, I will come like a what? Like a thief. Like a thief. Let me just read a, a few New Testament passages um, first from Jesus himself and then from the Apostle Paul describing Jesus coming like a thief. This is Matthew 24, verse 42. I think this one will be on the screen. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed, what? Awake, and would not have left his house to be broken into. 
Therefore, verse 44, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So there's this issue of warning to stay awake and stay alert because the second coming of Christ is going to catch you off guard on some level. In 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul writes, verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Why were they fully aware of that? Because Jesus said it. They had heard the teachings of Jesus. And it would come like a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and what? Security. Sounds like Sardis, doesn't it? Peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I almost, I almost don't like it when the scriptures use birthing pains to describe something going on because like, I can't fully relate, but you ladies can. And so what's being described here is like that first significant contraction, like, oh, God, something just happened. Like, I don't know what it's like. Um, my, my wife hasn't experienced that because of emergency C-sections, but many of you have. And in the same way, you know it's coming, right, ladies? Like, you're, you're watching the, the calendar. It's, it could happen any day now. The bags are packed. But it still catches you a little bit. Like, oh, what was that? And so that's the way that the coming of Jesus is being described here, like birth pains that come on suddenly. Verse 4. But, and this is important, Christians, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. While nobody knows the hour or the day, right? Nobody knows that. For believers, there is this command to stay awake, to, to stay awake, to stay alert, to be watching and expecting. So, when somebody puts up a billboard on I-30 and says, Jesus is coming back on October the 31st, 2015, just call their bluff, bull. Nobody's going to know the hour or the day. However, as believers, we should have our eyes on the horizon. We should be looking at what's happening politically and globally and within the church and all that Jesus says to describe what hap- what's going to be surrounding his return, and we should be what? Alert. That it wouldn't catch us off guard like a thief. It might catch us off guard like labor pains. I knew it was coming. Oh, there, there he is in a good way. Right? But not like a thief who sneaks into the city at night or sneaks into the house at night and completely catches us, what, asleep, in slumber, not expecting. Now, it's interesting because the Thessalonians that we just read out of 1 Thessalonians were a group of people, a group of believers that were so expectant and excited about the return of Christ, like they, were, they had quit, basically quit living. They were selling off stuff and they were packing their bags, Right? Thinning out the cargo, here we go, let's get ready for Jesus. Is that that him? And so in almost everything, they were interpreting it. And so I would say this, being alert doesn't mean that you quit engaging in today. As long as there is today, there's God-given purpose in today. You wake up tomorrow, alarm clock goes off, and you still have a job, go to your job. And live for Christ in your job. If God has blessed you with a family, when you come home, engage in that family Why? Because Christ hasn't come back. The work is not done yet. However, be mindful, be watching, be alert, not drifting off into sleep, into slumber, into a coma, eventually spiritual death. Jesus says in Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. We're going to talk about that next. That he may not go about naked or be seen exposed. Now we'll continue reading in Revelation verses 4 through 6. 
So despite that warning and what's going on, verse 4 says, Yet you, you have still a few names in Sardis. Remember what he said? Your name, you're known for what? Being spiritually alive, but you're actually dead. You have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, here we have this beautiful biblical imagery that before a holy God, what is on the inside is what clothes you on the outside. He says there's a few here who haven't soiled their garments. He's not talking about going to the bathroom on themselves, though that probably could apply here. He's talking about literally a soil on the outside, grass stains, dirty, grungy clothing. Now, this, this imagery is rooted all the way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 64, 6. We read this, that we all become like one who is unclean. So if we're spiritually unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so the, the prophet Isaiah is describing spiritual deadness on the inside is like just being filthy on the outside, polluted, stained, and dirty. Now, he's not knocking them for the clothes that they're wearing. Why? Because he doesn't see their clothes. He sees the inner self. And what he says is, what I see on the inside is the same as if you just walked around with polluted, dirty, soiled, nasty, grungy clothing. That's what your spiritual heart looks like. What's beautiful is that in Christ, though, just like the prodigal son when he returns home, in Christ, what happens? Jesus comes to me and he says, come to me and bring, bring your soiled, dirty garments. Watch this. And he takes this beautiful, righteous, clean robe and he wraps it around you. It's his righteousness. He says, this is a gift to you. My righteousness is yours to wear now. So when we see that there's some who are going to be dressed in white, it's those who trusted in Christ. Not those who have been perfectly, morally, right, straight and narrow. If that's the case, it's going to be lonely in heaven. It's going to be Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit, chilling in heaven. Nobody's going to be there, right? It's those who are by faith made right, who've been robed in white, who've exchanged their, their garments, their polluted garments for the righteousness of Christ. Now, this imagery was prevalent even in the pagan culture. Um, they were expected to show up for pagan worship with clean clothes. If you had soiled clothes of any kind, you were unfit to be able to worship, and they would send you back home, even in the pagan world. In the Christian world, we get this imagery. That's Colossians, Galatians, Ephesians all talk about when we become Christians, what happens. I want to read just a couple of excerpts, one from Colossians and one from Galatians. So just listen to this. If you're a Christian, this is what the Word of God is describing happens to you at the moment you believe. Colossians chapter 3, 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So you and your own efforts, here's what you've done with your life. You created this dirty, polluted image. And at the moment you believe, Jesus says, here, give me that, take that off. You were actually created to bear the image of God, a perfect image of God. Let me wrap you in that. Let me clothe you in that. 
Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you, excuse me, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Again, Ephesians, it says the same thing. This idea that when we become Christians, we take off our polluted garments and we put on the righteousness of Christ. There was a practice in the first century church, I think even bleeding into the second century church, um, and uh, where whenever they would do baptisms, um, rather than like walking into the baptistry like we do here with some shorts and t-shirt on, they would actually get undressed, take off their old clothes, go into the baptistry, be baptized, and as they came up out the other side, the church there would have a new set of clothes for them, symbolizing that they had taken off and put on. Now, as you can imagine, baptisms in the nude is kind of a, a shaky thing, so um, especially with public baptismals and that sort of thing. So it didn't last very long, thank God. We don't do that anymore. But even the Christians wanted to give an effort to symbolize how their polluted hearts have been, what? Made righteous and clean in Christ. Now, this is not building a case for wearing your Sunday best or church clothes. Right? Why? Because you can try it, but God sees right past it. Clean yourself up. If, if wearing nice clothes as part of your worship is important to you, do that. But understand that when we walk through those doors back there, Jesus looks right past your clothes, right past your facade, right past the personality you're projecting, and he sees our hearts. And if you're in Christ, guess what he sees? He sees righteousness, and he sees you as though you're clothed in a white robe. Perfect. I need to hear that. The time Sunday rolls around, I feel like I've soiled everything up again. What am I doing? I'm trusting in my own moral effort, my own strength, my own good deeds. And I come in here bruised and battered and feeling dirty. And then I start singing songs that remind me that Jesus doesn't see that. He sees an inner me that is white and clean and righteous and pure. And he says, in this church, there were a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. We're going to see this more and more as we go into Revelation, especially towards the end. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So if you're in Christ, you've been clothed in righteousness. Your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. It's permanent, not going to be blotted out. You can't do that for you. Jesus did that for you. Not only that, he goes on to say, and I will confess his name before my Father. So here's the thing. like When you stand before the holy presence of God, he looks at you and sees his son's righteousness on you, and Jesus is going to be there to introduce you to the Father and to say your name. Here we were talking to a group of people who had a fake name. Jesus is saying, I'm going to name you according to who you actually are. You're mine. If you are a male in here today and you're a Christian, you're a son of the Most High God. Jesus is going to introduce you as his brother. This is my brother. Well, his righteousness looks a lot like yours, Jesus. Yeah, because he's wearing mine. I've made him right. If you are a female in here, I don't care if you're six years old or 60 years old. If you're in Christ, you're going to be introduced by Jesus as his sister. This is my sister in Christ. You can tell. Why? Because she's wearing my righteousness. And God the Father looks at you and says what? You are mine. And Jesus says, I won't blot your name out. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels 
And then we get this, again, this wake-up call. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, these letters are primarily written to Christians. These warnings, wake-up call, right? Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, hold fast, and repent. These are instructions for the Christian church. So, so first of all, as a church, we've got to process that. We've got to be able to, or willing to look at our own lives and take some spiritual inventory and say, how, how, how am I faring up against this? What kind of letter would Jesus be writing me? If he's describing what's on the inside, would I be spiritually alive? Like the church last week, walking in love and faith and, and service and patient endurance? Or would he call me out? And say, I know that you've got everybody fooled there around you, and, and they all think that you're alive, and, but man, I can see that you're dead on the inside. So I think this is also good news for those who are here today who aren't Christians. Jesus is saying what? Hey, come to me. Bring me your polluted garments. Bring me the mess you've made. Bring me your inability to perform and impress People, bring me your inability to be perfectly moral. Bring it all to me. Bring it to me. And let me clothe you in my righteousness. Now, who wants to stand before a holy God who sends his son like a thief in a night based on their own strength or their own merit? I don't. It's going to take one look at me and go, out of here. You don't belong here. But Jesus has clothed me in his righteousness so that God looks at me and says, you belong here. You're mine. You look like my son. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, like the invitation to be a Christian isn't an invitation to join a club. It's not. It's not a book reading club. It's not the Rotary Club. It's not some inside trading organization where now you're going to get all these good business deals. It doesn't come with a whole lot of business benefits. Being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to like you going forward. You're going to have a, tons of friends and you're going to get rich and wealthy. And those aren't part of the promise of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is come to me as you are and I will meet you there. And I have so much love and grace for you that I will wrap you in my righteousness. Every deed of your life, every action from your past, everything will be completely covered. That invitation is on the table for you today by faith. Jesus isn't about fixing you up. He's not into remodeling. He makes all things new, brand new today by faith. So I'm going to pray for us today. If you're taking notes, um, just this one last note. Jesus alone clothes his people in righteousness and establishes our permanent identity. He's the only person that can do that for you. I can't do it for you. He can. So let me pray for you as our worship team comes back up. And let's prepare to respond. As the worship team comes up, our prayer partners are going to be in the back. And if you are here today and you'd like for somebody to pray over you or you want to learn more about becoming a Christian, um, they're here to talk with you. Okay, So prayer partners will be in the back. They'll have lanyards on. Um, our elders who are here today will be in the back as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how gracious and generous and loving you are.
as we read in Isaiah today, God, our most righteous deeds, the best we can offer is like a filthy garment compared to you. So God, thank you for causing our dead hearts to become alive. Thank you for taking our soiled, dirty, polluted garments off and dressing us in your righteousness. Father, like the church in Sardis, many of us need to strengthen what remains. We need to wake up. We need to come back to life. God, would you help us, first of all, to remember. To remember who you are and what you've done on the cross for us. Would you remind us to hold fast, to trust the truth of the gospel more than we trust ourselves or any teaching circulating in our culture. And Father, we see repentance as a good thing. That today, every person in this room, God, would engage in repentance to let go of something sinful to take hold of Christ. Holy Spirit, in the same way you moved in the church in Sardis, would you move at Solid Rock Church today? Move among us. Open our eyes to see. Give us ears to hear that we might respond. We pray in Jesus' powerful name.